Good morning, everyone. Again, I really want to thank all of you for praying for me. Some of you know I was in the hospital not too long ago, and uh, I have uh, been trying to take it easier. Life doesn't let you do that, but uh, I've been trying to take it a bit easier, and I could tell you, so many of you were praying for me because my blood pressure has been going really well, and I have felt very good this week. So I promise only to preach for an hour and a half. <laughs> so we're doing, a, we're doing a series, and the series came out of my time when I was, I was at home, I was resting, I was reading, I was researching, and God had led Lisa and me to do a study of Genesis and to really go into Genesis. And one of the reasons that we did is that Genesis is a book that is so helpful in terms of how do you live your faith in the midst of a very broken world? When things are very difficult, very challenging against you, how do you live by faith in a victorious way? And so we're looking at, over the course of the summer, we're looking at this genesis of faith. And, and today we're looking at the whole chapter 3, uh, particularly this chapter on sin, but in a perspective that says, if you can embrace this chapter, you can actually begin to live with a new hope. And so the part I'm going to read, this is a translation, a newer translation by a Genesis scholar. The part I'm going to read is, is really um, Satan has introduced himself as a serpent, and he is tempting uh, our first parents, he's tempting them to rebel against God. And so this is the... Uh, this is a passage from chapter 3 that I'd like you to read with me. So I like it when you read out loud God's word. So will you do this? This is Genesis chapter 3, a little, bit, little piece of it. For God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and that it was lust to the eyes and the tree was lovely to look at. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her man, and he ate. And the eyes of the two were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. So what we have is that after the creation, and Adam and Eve have been spending amazing time with God in his manifest and in his relational presence. Satan is introduced to Adam and Eve. He enters in the scene in Genesis 3. And the first thing that he does is he questions, he, he puts a doubt. Has God really said? And in doing so, what he does is he's attacking that God has authority over the garden, but particularly that God has authority over the humans. And so what we see is Satan's own rebellion now reflected in him trying to lead these original humans into equal rebellion against God's glory. Now both the humans and Satan have seen the manifest glory of God, the beauty of God. And yet what we see is that Satan refuses that God should be the owner. He refuses a position of stewardship. 
an entrusted position of responsibility and authority, yes, but under the ownership of God. And so because he refuses that stewardship position, he gets booted out of heaven. But now, you see, he doesn't want to just be the only one who refuses stewardship. What he wants is now for the humans to say, how dare God relegate me to this a position, this authority as a steward. I want to be an owner. And so the, the, the sticking point or the point of decision is that there's a tree that's been forbidden and there's a fruit that's been forbidden. And they have to decide, will we take the road of stewardship or will we take the road of ownership? And Satan is saying to them, did God really say that? So when they fall and they make the choice, in some ways it seems right to ask, and at least I was asking the question, well, why would they do such a thing? Why would they trade the glory of God to become, in a sense, alienated from God and to try to be the owners of their own lives? Why would they do that, or how could they do that? No one, in terms of you know, regular human beings, has ever experienced the kind of manifestation of God's beauty and glory like they did. And yet the scripture here is very illustrative, very descriptive. And one of the key phrases is the phrase that was translated, we just read, that the tree and the fruit was lust to the eyes. Now, typically in the English translation, doesn't translate it this way, but this is literally what the Hebrew means. The typical translation is that it was a delight to look at. And certainly it was a delight to look at, but that doesn't get at the real meaning of the Hebrew word that's used here. The Hebrew word here is ta'awah, which means that it's an intense desire. In other words, it's an over-desire. It's an awakening of an appetite they didn't even know they had. Often this is used to talk about sexual lust and sexual desire that's illicit. But in this case, lust is not used to talk about sexual desire. It's used to talk about anything that a human being feels that is an over-desire. Where it becomes something that they cannot live without. The idea here is that something has caught your eye in such a way that you're saying, this is life. This is satisfaction. This is success. I can't live without this. That's what they were experiencing. That's what the scripture describes. So you'll remember that Satan, as a serpent in this narrative, has made a promise to them. And all of this has to do with the eyes. It was lust to the eyes. But Satan has already promised them that their eyes would be wondrously opened if they would just rebel against God. If they would just take ownership of their own bodies, renounce their stewardship, become owners. Then their eyes would be wondrously opened. But the problem is that when their eyes are opened, all they see is this desire that they can't live without. 
And so this lovely tree, this beautiful tree, becomes the source of over-desire. Now, why is this so important? Well, because it might be in Genesis 3, but it's in your heart too. There are things that you have seen with your eyes, and you didn't know you were hearing a voice, but the voice was saying, you can't live without this. You can't live without that relationship. You can't live without this job. You can't live without this amount of money. You can't be happy unless this happens. See, it doesn't have to be sexual for it to be lust. It's anything that is an over-desire. Anything that begins to say, if this appetite is not satisfied, then I cannot live. And if you're honest and you look back over your life, there have been things that you were linked to, things that you saw, things that you wanted. They weren't mere desires. They were over-desires. There was something in that thing or in that experience or whatever it was that you were convinced would make all the difference in the world. See, up to this point, their eyes have been for one thing, Their eyes have been for beholding the glory and the beauty of God. They've seen his manifest presence. They've seen his relational presence. But you see, this trap comes in and says, his presence is not enough. His love is not enough. If I can't have this, then it doesn't matter what else I have. This is one of the great pictures of Genesis 3 and why it's so important to get it is up to this point the source of their life has been spiritual they have they have lived in the joy of the Lord and the joy of the Lord has been their strength you understand what the psalmist says he says in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forever They've known that. But now something has been triggered in them by their eyes that says, that's not enough. God, you're not enough. And so they begin to fall into that trap. You see, up to that point, God had been ultimate. But when they saw the tree that they couldn't have, then the tree became ultimate. But you see, that's an illusion in a way. Because what it's really saying is it, it is ultimate to satisfy my desires. It is ultimate to, to quench my thirst. It is ultimate that I live in the physical, not that I live in the spiritual. So in order for that to happen, you have to throw off that God has ownership of your body. You have to throw off that God has ownership of your time. You have to throw off that God has ownership of your talents and your resource. And you have to say, I am the owner of my own body. God, I will not be the steward. I will not be the governor. I will not be your servant. I will be God. I will be the owner. And basically what they believed is that they can't be happy if they're not the owner. They can't be satisfied. But you see, that doesn't happen easily. It only happens when something is so perfectly 
placed in front of your eyes and you say, I have to have this. This must happen. You see, it's not just sexual desire. It's any over desire becomes the trap. Now, one of the things that's really important in this and is that, you see, God has said to them, you can have any other tree. But you see, what happens is when the lies begin, they become very powerful, and they're connected to the over-desire. And the lie goes something like this. God, if I can't have this, I can't really have anything. God, if you won't give me this, then you're not really giving me anything. Now, if you don't see yourself in this, you're not looking too closely. The issue for all of us is over-desires. The issue for all of us is wanting things and then wanting, if God is going to be in your life, wanting Him to be the means to your ends. But you see, He's God. And if He's going to be in your life, He's going to be the end, not the means. So many of us, we pray our idols We ask God to resource our idolatry and we're upset with God because he doesn't give success to our idols. And here in this story, we have this perfect picture of of two people who have the entire garden and every fruit, every vegetable that they could possibly have. And yet where are they standing? In front of the one they cannot have. And if you don't think this is human nature, this is my nature. Tell me I can't have something? Tell me I can't do something? Starts to be the only thing I want to do. Starts to be the only thing I want to have. I remember as a kid, my grandmother said, you can't go in the living room. But the living room had carpet. (laughs) It was the place you could wrestle. Her house was horribly boring. So my brother and I would get right to the door of the room and lean in like that. My brother would push me in. I'd pull him in. We'd start wrestling. She'd come in yelling. Because she, she called them whatnots in Louisiana. They're called whatnots. You probably call them tchotchkes or something like that. So there was glass. It could get broken. But you know what was really scary in that room? The picture of Jesus with the eyes that moved all <laughs> over the place. So not only was grandmother coming after me, Jesus was coming after me. That's so true. Because it was the most fascinating room in the house. Because it was the one room you couldn't go into. Now maybe I'm the only one that does that. But Genesis 3 says all of you do that. It's that over-desire of something you want, especially triggered by the fact that someone says to you, you can't have it. It's It's that inner thing that says, I'm not a steward of my life. I'm the owner of my life. This is my body. This is my time. This is my talents. This is my resources. Nobody tells me what to do. Now, Again, I don't think you have to teach anybody those kind of words. I remember uh, I'm the oldest of five, and I had to take care of the younger siblings when my mother went to work. 
And what I would always hear is, you are not the boss of me. (laughs) Or their other favorite one, you're not my mother. I never had to teach my siblings those statements. It came naturally. In other words, they were saying, I'm not going to be stewarded by you. I'm the owner. And they could say it when they're three years old. Are you tracking with me in this? So, what happens then is whenever people fail to be ruled or to be under the rule of God, what happens then is abuse. What happens then is lawlessness. In some ways, can you imagine, if you think about it with me, if God is the owner of us all and we are stewards of our own life, how could we own another human being? If God is the owner and we are stewards and we are fellow stewards, even if you're not a Christian, but you just have a sense of a creator and stewardship, how could you buy and sell other human beings? You can't own somebody who's already owned. Am I making my point in this? So, If God is the owner and you are the steward, then every action that you take that puts you outside of your stewardship is an act of abuse against yourself. It's an act of lawlessness. As a matter of fact, John the Apostle in 1 John calls sin lawlessness. This is basically a childish cry, even if you're an adult, that says, you're not the boss of me. It isn't that you just go around breaking the law. That's not it. It's that you will not have a law be over you. You will not have your creator be owner of you. I will do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. So what you see is you see that Adam and Eve from the beginning did not want to be restricted from the one forbidden tree. Though they had permission for every other one, They thought that God was denying them their right, ownership. So Satan sold them the lie that they should be owners, not stewards. Here's the thing. I mean, any of you that know anything about the way Satan works, every one of his lies has a hook in it. So he's tempting you to freedom, but it actually hooks you into slavery. He tempts you into satisfaction by stimulation, but everything he gives you does not satisfy. It may stimulate, but it'll never satisfy and it'll never fulfill. Anything that God gives you is not only an incredible pleasure, but it leaves no regret. It leaves no hook in in it. Now, (laughs) though they had this access to all these trees... They only wanted the one. That was the, the object of their over-desire. And so we, we see that when they eat, their eyes are open, but it's not so wondrous. And what I love is in verse 12, and the way that God deals with them is, is so important to, to watch. So he comes to them and he says, Who told you that you were naked? Now, if God ever asked you a question, It's never for information. (laughs) 
He asked the question to trigger the root issue. But to do so by getting you to see it for yourself. This is a moment of revelation. Because God could have said, why did you do that? Or God could have said, what's the shame on you right now? Or he could have said, shame on you. But you see, God sees that they are now covered in shame. So to shame them for their shame will not bring hope. But what we see is something really important here. By saying, who told you you were naked? Suddenly, revelation starts to come. And the shame becomes apparent. You see, think about this with me. They're exhibiting shame. They're they're hiding. Shame always makes you hide. But it's fueled by fear. So see, if you, if you just keep triggering the fear, all you're going to do is have more shame and have more hiding. This is such an important thing for really trustworthy, intimate relationships. If you are living in a relationship with tremendous shame, that shame is fueled by fear. But that shame will also make you hide. So even though someone wants to love you, you have walls up that won't let them love you. Shame makes you hide. Shame is triggered by fear. So either you choose fear or you choose love because perfect love casts out fear. It's a funny thing, as I you know, talk to a lot of people in this area for the last 17 years, people will say to me, I really wish people could understand me. And I say to them, do you let yourself be known by them? No. Do you share your life? Do you share your stories? Do you share your hurts and your pain? And your vulnerable? Are you vulnerable? They say, no, I, am, I, I cannot trust that people will handle my vulnerability. I said, you want to be understood, but you don't want to be known. So shame, fueled by fear, is making you hide even from your wife, even from your husband, even from your friends, your fellow workers. You see, God knows and God shows in this that if he doesn't deal with the shame by dealing with the fear, then they'll just keep hiding. And what they really need, they'll never be able to receive because you can't receive love if you're hiding. Even if you put up an imposter, you put up a presentation of yourself, it's just hiding. And even you will know that they love the presentation of me. They don't love the real me. So God speaks to us in a question, not for information, but a question to bring revelation. And what is revealed is what idiots we are. Listen to this. I mean, think about it. So he repeats this verb twice. The woman you gave me gave me the fruit. Well, the serpent tricked me, she says. So what has happened in there? Shame makes you blame. And it is true he's blaming the woman, but he's really blaming who? God. You did this. I couldn't help myself. I'm not going to sing that song Kelvin sang two weeks ago. Sugar pie, honey bunch, right? 
can't help myself. But doesn't it make sense now why we need the fruit of the Spirit? Because we can't help ourselves. We have to have supernatural change. We have to be born again. We have to have a new nature because we can't help ourselves. We can't help but blame others for our shame. And, it, and, and do you know how desperate this is? It means I don't have to change till you change. I don't have to change or I can't change till the world changes. This is really an important point. You may have just allowed yourself to stay in shame even though you have somewhat come to a saving relationship with Christ. But if you don't let him save you from your shame, then fear is still the true motivation of your life. It's still the true power source of your life because a heart cannot exist, cannot allow fear and love to exist in the same place. You choose either fear as your power source or love as your power source, but you can't have both. And if shame is there, it means you've chosen fear. And if shame is there, it means you're still hiding. And so God is more dealing not with your behavior, but with your shame. Because if he can break the power of shame in your life and break the power of fear in your life, then you can live with a faith that has unlimited potential. So, it's not always easy to talk about a chapter that is all about sin. But what we see in this chapter is we see the first split. This is the first time in creation there's a split. So there's a split between humans and God. It's called enmity. But now there's a split between humans and humans. And not only that, because when God curses the serpent, and when God, in a way, is told by Eve that the serpent has tricked her, then you sort of see the separation now or the split between humans and nature. So now the whole world is affected by this decision. By human beings deciding we will be owners, not stewards, we have now subjected the very creation to the enmity that we experience. As a matter of fact, in Romans 8, it says all of creation is, is groaning and longing for the day of redemption, for the day in which the sons and daughters of God will be revealed. So this word sin, though I think it very important, has somewhat disappeared from the, our society's conversations. Now, what I wanted to do, I know this is going to be a little bit deep for a little bit, but I want to share with you a writer by the name of Carl Menninger. He's secular. I don't know anything about any religious background that he has whatsoever. He's a psychiatrist who started a clinic and who wrote a book about, called Whatever Happened to Sin. And this was many, many years ago, but his book is still incredibly relevant for today. So he says, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word, but the word went away. It has almost disappeared, the word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? 
guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know, but is no one responsible, no one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings, but has no one committed any sin? I have pursued the possible usefulness of reviving the use of the word sin, not for the word's sake, but for the reintroduction of the concepts of guilt and moral responsibility. Here's his, this is his conclusion. I'm summarizing a whole book for you. But here is his conclusion. He says, sin is the only hopeful view. The present depression, partly the result of our self-induced conviction that since sin has ceased to be, still evil appears all about us. And when this or that awful thing is happening, and yet when no one is responsible, no one is guilty, no moral questions are asked, when there is, in short, nothing to do, we sink to despairing helplessness. Therefore, I say that the consequence of my proposal would not be more depression, but less. If the concept of personal responsibility and answerability for ourselves and for others were to return to common acceptance, hope would return to the world with it. I'm going to unpack a little bit of this, but I want to start here. It doesn't matter which generation you come from. It doesn't matter whether you live in the nuclear age or the digital age. It does not matter. The issue of our lives is sin. And the remedy for sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there, I love psychology. I'm fascinated by how screwed up all of you are. I'm fascinated by how screwed up I am. There are still things that come out of my mouth or things that I do. I go, why did I do that? How could I have done that? I usually say, Lisa, why did you let me do that? <laughs> the woman you gave me... But we don't need more lies to help us cope with our old lies. We don't nearly need to cope and survive so that we get by. The promise of Jesus is life and life to the full. The promise of Jesus is abundance. Every promise of God is yes and amen. You know, I'm not saying that he doesn't care that we're dysfunctional. But that's just the symptom. What he wants to get at is the root. And until we begin to really realize that we're dealing with a sin issue, not simply a psychological or chemical issue. Here's, I mean, here's one thing that I've seen in my life. If I will recognize where my issues are, he can heal any of them. I had depression for many, many years, long time, deep depression. It was chemically, it, there was something chemically wrong with my brain. I had two head injuries as a, a teenager, which it, to many of you will explain a lot. But uh, 
I had two head injuries that called chemical, caused chemical damage, and it was done at a time when they couldn't map the brain, but now that they can, I know what happened to my brain. I know what happened to my physical and chemical ways of neural pathways. But when I took that to God and said, Lord, I, I can't handle details. I can't finish tasks. I can't stay focused. I know that this is a physical issue. But I know that you're the God who created me and can recreate even the neural pathways of my brain. And as I began to give to him my shame, and I'm telling you, it was the pain of my life, but it was the shame of my life and the fear of my life as I began to just really give that to him in an incredibly honest and vulnerable way. He came and he took the pain and he took the shame and I actually had, and this may seem strange, but I had a vision, a daytime vision of Jesus coming in a bright white light. I gave him the pain. I gave him the shame. He took it. And as he was taking it, I started to feel tingling in my brain. And it felt like my whole brain was being rewired. And I began to, to see differently, feel differently, I began to respond and react differently. If you had known me in my 30s before this happened, you would not recognize me in some ways. He not only took my shame, but he reordered my brain. But many of us, you see, we want to hold on to our shame and our pain because we think it makes us special. He will not take from you what you're unwilling to give to him. But what you give to him, he can make something wonderful out of that. Are you tracking with me a, a little bit? So this idea of sin means that even my dysfunction, even the areas of psychosis, neurosis, whatever, are not enough. I have to be willing to be changed from my innermost to my outermost. And this is the promise of the scripture. Is not merely that you'll be saved to go to heaven, but rather that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Transformed by his presence and his power. So if you take what Dr. Menninger said, and you begin to understand that you and I can operate with not only a belief, but a a firm foundation that sin is the issue and Jesus is the remedy, then we begin to realize not only is there an obligation to change, but there's the possibility of change. And this is a wonderful hope. This is a wonderful truth because if you take the opposite, and, and sometimes it's just so important that we, that we unmask what's being told to us. If there is no sin, then there's no real reason, nor is there a right to intervene with what's wrong. It's no more, you know, all of us instinctually, when you see violence against our Asian fellow citizens, brothers and sisters, you know it's wrong. But you see, if it's not sin, who gets to say what's wrong? Usually, if it's not Dealing with sin, it's whoever's the strongest gets to tell the weakest what's right 
and what's wrong. The dominant culture gets to oppress because it's the dominant culture. But if it's sin to oppress, it doesn't matter who's doing it. If God is the owner and we're the stewards and the owner says, this is wrong, then it's just wrong. But here's the other thing about that. Is if there is no sin, then there's no real possibility of change. Because, because you see, when, when I feel oppressed or I feel I've been unfairly treated, I'm not going to... I'm not going to answer with equal justice. Come on. I'm going to answer in such a way that you'll never mess with me again. That's why God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Because the slightest thing that someone does to you can create a nuclear war. Because who are you to treat me like this? I'm going to show you to never do that to me again. Are, are you tracking with me in this? But if it's sin, then even if I feel that I don't have the ability to change this person, I know who the righteous judge is. And I know my appeal is not just to the government of the United States, but my appeal is to the court of heaven. And Satan is powerful, but he only has a third of the angels. Two thirds are still waiting. And ready. And those of us who pray for revival, we're praying that they will come and camp in the Northeast. Is this, is, are, is this, you hearing me? See, if sin is really the issue, then everything gets a lot more clarified. And the remedy is Jesus. So let's, let's talk about the nature of sin for just a minute. Do I still have time? I have, ooh, I have seven minutes to explain sin. <laughs> let's, let's see how fast I can do this. All right, let me do it quickly. So here's what the Old Testament does, and this is why the Old Testament is so important to study. The Old Testament gives you pictures where the New Testament give you, gives you principles. So the picture in Genesis 3 is a picture of the root of sin and the nature of sin. Now, the, the New Testament clarifies all of sin, fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. So those are principles. But here's the picture. Why is, why is this sin thing so powerful? Well, it's as simple as this. God said to Adam and Eve... I'm going to ask something of you. I'm going to say, you can't eat this tree. Now, people have racked their brains and they've said, well, that probably, was, that probably wasn't good fruit for them. It wasn't good for humans. It was something practical. Or others have said, there was probably some magic in the fruit or whatever, and he didn't want them to eat the magic. It's ordinary fruit. It's an ordinary tree. He's saying, I am God. I'm the owner. You're the steward. I can tell you, don't eat this. Any of you who are parents, haven't you done this before? Where you go, 
Don't do this. Why, Daddy? Because of this, this, and this. But why? Because I said so. Even though you said I would never say that. But you realize after the 10th explanation, at this point, you're just going to have to be the parent. They're going to have to be the child. They're going to have to realize you know what they don't know. And they're going to have to learn. And you're going to have to try not to kill them. <laughs> well, here it is in Genesis 3. I said so. Not because there's anything wrong with the tree. The tree's lovely. The tree causes lust to the eyes. The tree causes appetite and over-desire. This is about relationship to God. Am I going to be a steward or am I going to be an owner? And this is where the test comes. Now, to explain this a little bit further, we have to talk about what God is really getting at and what he's getting at in your life. You see, Every person has what's called common virtue. Jonathan Edwards explains this extremely well. I'm going to explain it somewhat quickly. If you want to look at my notes, I have a lot of notes on this. It'll be on the webpage. But let me just give you this, the short answer. Every person has what's called common virtue. But what God is always looking at is true virtue. And the only way to, by your own virtue to be acceptable to God is to have true virtue, not common virtue. Now, what distinguishes the two? Here's what common virtue is. It's you do things only because they're good for you. Now, I'm going to use one virtue that we all agree on. We all agree honesty is a virtue. So let's talk about common honesty. Why are we commonly honest? Well, the motivation for common honesty is basically fear and pride. You hear from the time you're a little kid, honesty is the best policy. Cheaters never prosper. So you're hearing, if you cheat, if you lie, if you do things that are dishonest, it won't work out for you. You will get caught. So the fear of getting punished is the reason you're honest. Which is always shocking, isn't it, when you're not honest, because Again, you're operating out of fear, and when you don't fear getting caught, but you fear you know, what's going to happen if you really are honest, then you'll be dishonest. And we're often shocked at how dishonest we really are. So it's a common kind of honesty. So one is fear. You're honest because you're afraid of the consequences. But the second one, and many of us have lived under this. I, I don't know if all of you have, but I certainly did. But my mother said, we're not that kind of people. So lie, liars are trash. Liars are scum by my mother's definition, and we're not that kind of people. You don't want to be that kind of people. All right, so now it's not just fear, but it's pride. So I'm going to be honest because I don't want to be those kind of people. But let's, let's take it a step further. This is... This is what you got to think about. So if the motivation for being honest is fear and pride, what's the motivation for being dishonest? Well, many of us who lie, we lie when we get caught, so we're afraid, so we lie. So the same motivation I had to be honest is the same motivation I have to be dishonest, which is fear. 
And people who cheat, people who lie, they don't want people to know that they're failures. They don't want people to know that they're really not very moral people or have great character. So their pride makes them dishonest so that they present themselves in a fake way, in an imposter way, because they don't want anybody to know who they really are. So common virtue means that whether I lie or I tell the truth, I'm doing it for the same motivation, fear and pride. Do you understand how common virtue is not acceptable to God? Because it's based on fear and pride. Well, what is true virtue then? Well, if we're honest, the only true virtue that there is is Jesus. Because if you and I tell the truth, even when we try to have true virtue, it's still mixed with common virtue. I mean, I may love truth, but I don't love getting caught. I may love truth, but I don't like being punished. I don't like being criticized. But you see, for Jesus, the beauty of his Father and the glory of God, he never said a deceptive thing. He never said a dishonest thing. Every word he spoke was fearless. Every word he spoke was humility because not only did he speak truth, but he spoke truth with love. Even when he was, he was having to discipline or rebuke someone, he was doing it for their sake, not his sake. So how do you go from common virtue to true virtue? This is the only way I know. Is you and I are worth nothing apart from the cross. It's when you embrace the cross of Jesus Christ and you say with a sincere heart and a, and a true heart, and you say, I am broken, I am dishonest, I have nothing but broken common virtue. That's the best that I have. And all that's there is fear and all that's there is pride. When you can own that, then you can take hold again of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ where he says, I know how bad you are. That's why I had to suffer the justice and the wrath of God and become sin for you. I know how bad you are, but I want you to live with absolutely no more pride and no more need to lie about yourself because I'm your savior and I'm your redeemer and I took the punishment for you. And I didn't do it because I had to. I did it because I chose to. You see, you're so sinful, he had to die, which means you have no basis for pride. But you are also so loved that he chose to die, which means you have no basis for fear. At least from what's going on in my life, and I think what's going on in your life is God is, God is forcing up your shame. God is forcing up your fear. God is not letting you hide. But he's not doing it to embarrass you. He's not saying you're, you shouldn't be ashamed. He's not saying you shouldn't be afraid. He's saying, who told you you were naked? And what he wants you to do is say, I'm not naked anymore. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm not afraid anymore because Jesus died for me. I'm not 
I'm not thinking it's only about me. I'm not thinking I'm an owner. I'm thinking I'm a steward because Jesus chose me. Who told you you were naked? It's time for you to show the righteousness of Christ and say, I'm not naked anymore. Will you stand with me as we close? I love this picture that Mike laid out for us of being a steward or being an owner. And during the first service, I actually looked up what it meant to be a steward of something. And it uses wording like you have been entrusted with responsibility. God has entrusted you with yourself. And scripture tells us that we are God's workmanship. He trusts his workmanship, so he trusts you. And that's why he made this plan. The Bible says that we were created in Christ Jesus. We were created as his workmanship. And I think framing it as being a steward or an owner really makes it clear this sin issue. So this morning, would you just pause for a second and just think of those places in your life where you have tried to be an owner and not a steward. Father, I I recognize the places even in my own life where I have tried to take ownership, where I have not trusted in your goodness, where I've tried to do it on my own. But Father, I also recognize this morning that you made a plan for me to be created in Christ Jesus. Where I was dead to sin, I am made alive in him. And so Father, we take hold of that life We take hold of that record. We confess the places in our lives where we have tried to be owners and not stewards of what you've given us. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to take the wages of sin, to take that death and raise us to new life in him. And Father, what's even more beautiful is that you didn't just stop there, but you sent the helper, you sent your Holy Spirit to illuminate these places in us so that we can continue to become the people that you always intended us to be, to be people who are able to stand in the presence of God, fully known, fully accepted. And so this morning we take hold of this identity. We confess the places where we've tried to do it on our own. And we give you all the glory and all the honor. And we give you permission and access. In Jesus' name we pray.